1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read the first nine verses. Uh, This morning, though, I'll be focusing the exposition on the first three verses. Let's go to God's Word. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that, of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. And I pray now as we study it, Would our hearts be opened to receive it with joy and faith? And by your spirit, our minds be illuminated to understand it and to walk in obedience of it. God, would you teach us now and confront us in our hearts and confront us in our wickedness and show us the path of righteousness that we may indeed be called a community of grace because we have been saved by grace through faith. And would you teach us, Lord, to love one another and to love our neighbors as ourselves? And would you help us, Lord, to walk in light of the gospel and under the lordship of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name I now pray. Amen. Many of you may have heard of Martin Luther. In the 16th century, in the beginning of the 16th century, Martin Luther was studying to become a lawyer. He was very gifted, he was bright, he was intellectual, and he was making great strides in his career, much to the chagrin of his father. Yet one day he was traveling in a storm, and a lightning bolt had hit nearby and nearly caused him to fall off of his horse. And in his fear, he cried out to a saint, not to God, but to a saint, as what Catholics did often, and he pleaded that if God would save him, that he would devote himself to the church. Well, God did, and so did Martin Luther, and so he decided to parallel his, his rigor academic training with a rigorous monastic order, so he joined the monastic order of St. Augustine, which was known for its, its, uh, uh, its rigor, for its asceticism, and for its hardship. And he spent many hours at that point studying scripture. In fact, at that time, only the monks in the monasteries really had access to God's word. This was, of course, just before the printing press was something of a marvel. And so he began to study Scripture, and what he saw over the years of studying Scripture did not correlate with his experience of reality as a Christian in the Catholic Church. He knew that God's Word taught assurance and faith and justification, but his experience in the teaching of the Church seemed to teach something different. He didn't know if he could be assured of his salvation. He didn't know if there was grace extended to every sin for him unless he made penance and he did the sacraments. 
But he began to see and study scripture as the only sole authority of God to man that something wasn't right in the church. And of course, we know the rest of the story. He decided to go ahead and confront those issues and those misconceptions by way of the Protestant Reformation, him and several others. Well, here in just the story of Martin Luther, we see the extraordinary work of God's grace in saving an individual and the effect and the power what that grace can have, not only on that individual, but on the people around him. We are here today as Protestants and not Catholics in large part because of the work, the teaching, and the efforts of men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Swingley and Ulster and others. But it doesn't just stop with Martin Luther. Several centuries later, we have a man named John Newton. You may know John Newton for some of the hymns that we've sung or you've sung in church. And his conversion also highlights the power of the grace of the gospel. John Newton was not a Christian, although his mother was, but his dad was a sailor. And when his mother died at a young age, he began to go out sea with his own father, and he began to drink and have a licentious lifestyle, and he made it his duty to seduce other people. Those are his words in his biography. He was very much a lawless and a sinful person. And he was so wretched and so unpopular that he was conscripted into the Royal Navy, tried to desert, was captured, thrown in jail, beaten, and eventually released to work on slave ships. And even those, his, his fellow crewmen on the slave ships didn't like him, so they left him on the coast of Africa as they went back to sail to England. And he took up residence with a slave owner and a, a slave trader and worked on his plantation there and eventually was able to make his way onto slave ships and then was participating in the slave trade between the Americas. And eventually on one of these trips, much like Martin Luther, a storm hit and he was praying to God by God's common grace, praying to God that he would save him. And God did. And this was the beginning of John Newton's conversion story. Well, if you're familiar then with the rest of the story, John Newton began to read and study. And that, that institution, which once was his livelihood, became something so profane and ugly and disgusting to him. And he began to lead the slave trade. He was ordained in the ministry. And he began to teach and influence others. There's two men notable in my own life and in history that John Newton was able to influence. One was a poet named William Cooper. William Cooper was also a hymn writer, but he suffered very deeply with depression. And one of the ways that John Newton ministered to Cooper was to write hymns and poems with him. And some of this, this, the hymns that would come out of this project and this ministry are the hymns that we come to love and sing together. It's hymns like Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. Hymns like God Moves in a Mysterious Way and many more. There is a fountain filled with blood. These came from the pen of John Newton as he ministered to a friend and fellow Christian. Another notable figure that was influenced by John Newton was a man named William Wilberforce, who effectively allowed the parliament to pass the Abolition Act that ended the slave trade in Europe. These are important not just because one man is ability to do much, but actually we see God's grace in the heart and the life of one man to affect the world. We know because of John Newton's words that God's grace saved him that moment on the ship and influenced his life. So both John, Luton and John, uh, John Newton and Martin Luther's conversion and their story and their testimonies highlight the glory of the grace of God in the peculiar but powerful way that God's grace changes lives. Those who receive it 
and are affected by it are not left unchanged by it. They receive it with joy and gladness. And though there might be a time of of prolonging and suffering, God's work of grace in the lives of these individuals promotes grace and change. And this is why we're going to begin the study of the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. Now what makes the Corinthians a, a compelling case to study? What makes the church in Corinth something worth studying? I think Paul, as he wrote the letter, had three reasons at the very least why he wanted to work and serve the people in the church there in Corinth. The first was that this church had a storied past. They had a troubled history. Ancient Corinth was a vital city to the trade of the economy in the area. And it was known for its temple worship of the goddess of love. And of course, the economy was booming with with trade. But eventually, Rome came along, sacked it, and destroyed it. And then eventually rebuilt it under Roman rule and occupation. And with Roman occupation came Roman culture. And so the grandeur of Corinth, the city of this trade post, began to see itself in the lives of Roman culture. But so did temple worship. So did pagan and idolatry. So did licentiousness, lawlessness, sexual immorality, and the like. One commentator puts it like this. Corinth is something akin to our modern-day Las Vegas meets New York. A large metropolis, I can't say the word, but you know what it is, (laughs) that had a certain bent and proclivity towards sin. Not only was its past storied and troubled, but the church in Corinth found itself in a troubled present. If you read the letter to Corinthians, first and second, you'll know that the church is not Paul's flagship church plant. He planted many churches, and we have letters of him writing to them. And many of these letters, he commends them for their grace and their character and their work. But there's no such commendation to the Corinthians. The Corinthian church was replete with trouble and sin and pride and immorality. This was not Paul's flagship church. And so when we think about the troubling present that the church found itself in, Paul is writing to it because he knows against the backdrop of such Roman culture, there is a challenge that the church faces that it must be brought out of and taught and loved and reminded of because of God's grace. But more than the past and more than just the, the, the present, Paul saw in the Corinthian church a promising future. Paul is assured of God's faithfulness to the Corinthians as he is to every church that he plants and to every church that God starts. At the end of this letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he'll say this to the church, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The church in Corinth is a troubled church. It was growing, but not because of the right things. There were divisions and, fraction, and factions. There was, there was illnesses and there, there, was, there was disunity. There was sexual immorality that was not being addressed. There were things going on that were prideful and boastful in the flesh and not in the Lord. And Paul knew this about the church. It was broken. It was sinful. and did not reflect the gospel that Paul had originally deposited to those who were there. And so he writes the letter. Because he wants them to understand that their challenges they are facing are not insurmountable. He's writing his letter to the Corinthians to remind them that God's grace enables them to make it through the trials that they have. 
allows them to fight the sin, the temptation, and the challenges that have currently beset them. This is an encouragement for us modern readers today. Because like Corinth, we face similar challenges. We live in a culture that promotes sexual immorality. We live in a culture that allows us to be individualistic, to live for the self, to promote ourselves above, above others. We live in a culture that offers us everything that we can worship. So did the Corinthians. And Paul reminds them of God's grace, reminds them of the gospel, and instructs them how to live in accordance to the grace and the gospel. That is encouragement to us today. But despite however broken our church may be at times, however hard it may be to live faithfully in a culture like ours, beset with sins like ours, thrown apart by every wind and wave of doctrine and human cunning like ours, God's grace, Paul says, is sustaining us, can bring us to the end, hold us steadfast, and our work, like the Corinthians' work, will not be in vain. That's why we're studying this letter. And over the next year or so, we'll see how the grace of God shapes a community for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the joy and the glory of God. So this is the main idea this morning, is that the grace of God creates a community that grows in holiness and that glorifies God. The grace of God in the gospel and the free grace offered to those who would put their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ creates a community of grace that will grow in holiness and glorify God. That's what we want to see over the next several months in our study of this letter. The title of our series is A Community of Grace because that's what we want to be. And that's what the Corinthians were taught to be. Notice what Paul says in just his introduction in these short verses. He says, of course, Paul, who's writing, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus with our brother Sosthenes. Now, Paul reminds them that he was called as an apostle. And with apostolic authority comes the obligation to hear his words. He's reminding them that what he says does not come from his own mind, but come from the mind of God. To remind him... That remind them that God's word is coming to them now as God's teaching through Paul. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. What Paul is here doing by virtue of his apostolic nature, is telling us that we are rooted in grace and in the calling of God. He's reminding the church that their identity, who they are as a church, is rooted in the grace of God. And it's rooted in the grace of God under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Rooted in the grace of God under the lordship of Christ. He says that they are sanctified. Do you know what the word sanctified means? It means set apart or consecrated. It means, it means placed and given a particular purpose. God sets apart the church for a particular purpose. And he calls them, he says, to be saints together. He's reminding them of God's grace in their life and in their conversion, their story, that God saw them from eternity past and called them to himself, set them apart for his purposes and called them to be saints together. The word saint here isn't a, a, a qualitative difference of Christianity. 
It doesn't mean that there are some super Christians and some regular Christians, but actually just the identity of Christianity. If you are a Christian, you are a saint, saved and set apart for the purposes of God. And he says that they've been called to be saints together. So he's actually talking about a new community that is established in grace and the grace of God to call them and the grace of God to save them. The same grace that was given to Paul as an apostle is given to them as a church who saves them, converts them, brings them together to form a new community of grace. They are sanctified or set apart and they are called for a particular purpose. But what purpose is this? He says it's to call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He writes to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose that God saved the Corinthian church, and that's the purpose God saves you and brings you together as Foundation Church. He sets you apart as a Christian. He calls you to be a saint together with the church set apart for the purpose of calling upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In essence, he sets us apart and calls us for worship. He calls us for the purpose of worshiping him. He doesn't call us for the purpose of making us happy. He doesn't call us for the purpose of doing good in the world. He doesn't call us for the purpose of raising godly children. He doesn't call us for the purpose of advancing strategic initiatives throughout the globe. He doesn't call us for the purpose of whatever your pet project is. He calls us to the purpose of worshiping God. That's calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase to call upon the name of is borrowed from the Old Testament where the saints would call upon the name of Yahweh. But here he doesn't say Yahweh, he doesn't say God, he says to call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, in the eyes of the Corinthians, is telling them that Jesus is on the same level as Yahweh in the Old Testament. He's affirming the deity of Christ, the sonship of Christ. In fact, he'll say that grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So God sets apart, saves, and purposes the church for the work of worship. And he roots this work in grace. All throughout the rest of the letter, Paul will remind them that their work as a church is work that is extended from the work of grace that God has sown into their hearts. They're called and set apart for the purpose of calling upon the name of Jesus, of worshiping Jesus above all other names. This means that the lordship of Christ is the focal point of God's grace. All mercies and all blessings and all grace in our lives are meant to be the apex of the person and work of Jesus. They terminate in the worship of Christ, in the lordship of Jesus himself. Jesus is the focal point of God's grace. If you've noticed God's grace in your life, but not have followed it through to its logical end, that is Christ, you have not properly understood it. The lordship of Christ is the focal point of God's grace. And this is where we're led to, and to whom our voices and worship extol and call out. Jesus is the focal point of God's grace. And Paul reminds the Corinthians in the very beginning of his letter, friends, what I am writing to you and teaching to you and reminding you of is that God's grace in Christ is the very essence and the foundation of your identity as a church called by God, set apart by God. 
made and empowered to live for God in the world. It's rooted in grace under the lordship of Christ. That reality for the Corinthian church is a reality for our church and for every believer today. They have been set apart, called and consecrated for worship. They have been made and given a new identity as a saint together in the church to worship God, to call upon the name. What does grace do? Grace sets apart and repurposes God's people. Remember, the Corinthians live in a culture where there's pagan worship, there's idolatry and immorality, there's lawlessness abounding. And these Christians are being saved out of this context and out of this culture and are being repurposed, not for their own gain, their own pleasure, but for the worship of God. That's what God's grace does. It sets apart and repurposes God's people. It breaks them from the sinful and destructive pattern of their old way of life. And it enables them and frees them to walk in holiness before God. Only grace has the power to do that. Only grace has the power to change hearts, to to alter affections, to set a new disposition in the heart of an individual from sin to saint. So we have been given a new identity, Paul says. We are formed no longer in the image of the world, but now we are formed in the image of Christ. We are changed, radically transformed by grace. And we've been brought together as a new community. But what does this community look like? We see a picture of that just in these first three verses. We know that the the gospel produces a church where grace is celebrated. Their grace is celebrated. Paul's reminding them of the work of God's grace in their life, the calling of God, the setting of their lives apart for God is rooted in grace. He says, as he often does to his churches in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we communicate? How do we, how do we look to the church as a place where the gospel is expounded, produces a church where grace is celebrated? There's two ways. One, we must be continually mindful of the, gra- the grace of God in Christ. We must be continually mindful of the grace of God in Christ. Consider your own salvation and how God in his mercy and his grace led you to hear the gospel. Maybe for the first time or maybe it's a hundredth time. But at that moment, you savingly believed. You heard it and for the first time ever, your ears opened and you heard it in a new and fresh way. Your heart was moved with affection and love or maybe broken over your sin and you called out upon the name of the Lord. That was God's grace to you. But as we move on from that time, years pass, maybe decades pass. You can often forget the grace of God in your life. But friends, we must be regularly mindful of the grace of God in Christ to us. Reminding ourselves of our salvation. Reminding ourselves of God's grace in our lives. Reminding ourselves of the work of Christ in the life of the church and of our family and of everybody as we come to know them, love them, and serve them in the church, that God is moving graciously in the lives and the hearts of people. And so we must celebrate that grace. A new community of grace is a place where the gospel will produce a church where grace is celebrated. We must be mindful of the grace of God in Christ in our own lives. Be mindful where God is teaching us, where he's shaping us, 
where his hand of discipline may be chastening us, where he may be growing us. Be mindful where he's prospering us. We must be recognizing the work of God in our lives and give praise to God for that grace. But not only in our own lives, we must be mindful of the grace of God in Christ in each other's lives. That God is working in each other. That as he works in you, he works also in those next to you. That God is growing each one according to the measure of God's gift that he has given them in Christ. That he's growing them and transforming them from one degree of glory to another. That he with you is sanctifying his people. That he's growing his people in knowledge, maturity, and love, and in steadfastness. And that he who began that good work will bring it to completion. Well, this is good news for us because this means that we can extend grace to one another. This means that when someone fails me or I fail another person, grace can be extended to one another because God is at work. And we are mindful of the grace of God in Christ in the lives of each other. But how do we celebrate that? We'll simply put Paul in verse 4, we'll give thanks. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Paul's response as he considered the grace that was given in the gospel of the Corinthians was to give thanks. And that should be our response. As we celebrate God's grace in Christ, we must be moved to give thanks. We must be moved to thankfulness. Well, friends, when's the last time you've been genuinely moved to thankfulness? Maybe you pray before a meal and you give what's called grace. My family are not believers, and so every Thanksgiving, my mom comes to me and she calls me preacher man, which is a little derogatory, I think, which is your job to pray since I'm the only one there who's here, whose prayers would be heard, I imagine. And she says, Bob, will you say grace, please? And that's a poor shorthand for giving thanks to God for the grace of provision, right? And this is, this is happening all over the place. Whether you're Christians or not, this tradition is taking place. We recognize, though, that real, genuine thanks must be said not just at meals. must be said at every recognition of God's grace in our life. But when's the last time you genuinely gave thanks to God for his grace in your life? Maybe you woke up this morning and you were thankful for the breath in your lungs. Or maybe you remember that it's Sunday and you have to get the kids dressed and you have to get up and you have to get breakfast and somehow make it here before church starts. But can you give God grace, uh, thanks for his grace? Grace must be celebrated by giving thanks when we remember the work of God in our lives. But we also do this practically each week when we gather together and take the Lord's Supper. We give thanks and remember God's grace in Christ by taking the Lord's Supper together. This is how we symbolize and participate in grace. We say to one another, look what God has done for us. Look at the sacrifice Christ has made for us. And we celebrate the work of grace by eating and drinking and participating in the Lord's Supper. That's what grace does. It changes a once ungrateful heart, a rebellious and rejecting heart, to a thankful heart for the work of God, for the salvation of our souls to the affirmation of the salvation of others who take and eat and drink with us. We give thanks and we celebrate grace. So the gospel produces a church where grace is celebrated, but secondly, it also produces a church where grace is communicated. Grace must be communicated in a church that is centralized around grace. See, the most attractive aspect of our church should be the gloriousness of this grace. 
It's not going to be our music. It's not going to be our aesthetic. It's not going to be the good-looking pastor up front. It's going to be the gloriousness of God's grace in the gospel. Why'd you laugh, John? As much as we may love to serve and help others overcome obstacles of the gospel, the only real thing that matters is the grace of Jesus Christ extended in his life, death, and resurrection. That will be the most attractive aspect to those God is drawing to himself. That far beyond the good music, far beyond the sermon, far beyond the friendliness of the members here, it will be the work of the gospel and the grace of the gospel that will attract those whom God is calling to himself. So grace is communicated, friends, in the gospel. Grace is communicated to as we preach it, as we sing about it, as we visualize it in the Lord's Supper. Grace is communicated. It's also communicated in the content of our speech with one another. It's, con- it, it, it's communicated in the content of our speech to the lost. Friends, as you are sharing the gospel with your one or your neighbor or to those who are among you, Remember that the heart of our gospel commending and our ministry to the lost is God's free grace offered to those who are poor enough in spirit, as Christ puts it in the Beatitude, to see it for its glory. You're commending not a new way of living. You're commending not a new set of moral principles. You're commending not a a better way to be happy, but you're commending God's grace to the sinner in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It must be at the heart of your evangelism. It must be at the heart of your understanding of what the gospel is. God's grace in sending Jesus Christ as a substitute for the sin of you and me. That's grace. We must not only share it with the lost, but we communicate it to one another. We must exhort one another and build one another up in grace. What does Paul say to the Corinthians? To use our tongue and our speech in a manner that builds up one another that is good for grace. Not for self-esteem, not for career advancement, but building up one another in love and in grace. So grace needs to be communicated. At the end of Colossians chapter 4, Paul will pray or ask the church to pray for him. The doors would be opened up so that he may preach the gospel whose speech may be seasoned with grace, it says. Speak graciously to one another. The gospel is communicated in the content of our speech, not only to the lost as we preach about and teach about the gloriousness of God's free grace offered to those who need it, but to one another as we exhort each other to live by grace, as we extend grace to one another. So grace must not only be celebrated in the church, but it needs to be communicated in the church. But lastly, a gospel produces a church where grace is cultivated. See, grace isn't just a theological concept or a Christian buzzword, although it's thrown around with reckless abandon. Rather, grace is and must be a way of life. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, Walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What's he say here in our text? Paul himself was called by the will of God and they were called to be saints together who are to call upon the name of the Lord. 
if this is rooted in grace, then grace is experienced through our calling to live in light of grace, to cultivate this grace in our life. And we're to walk in a manner worthy of that calling to which we have called. Walk in a manner worthy of God who calls us into his glory. What ultimately does that look like? He says again in Colossians chapter 1, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in knowledge of God. So the grace of God leads us to cultivate holiness, godliness, generosity, faithfulness, righteousness, thankfulness, submission. You cultivate grace in your life, church, by following the commands of Christ laid out in Scripture. You cultivate grace in your life by walking in a manner worthy of the Lord and worthy of your calling. Simply ask yourself, what is my calling as someone saved by grace through faith demand of me in this moment? And you walk in that. Or you seek counsel and what that looks like and you are faithful and diligent to do it. This is how grace is cultivated. This is how you grow progressively in righteousness and this is how God receives glory in the church. Not as a theological concept, not as a word we throw around, but as a way of life, living out of the grace of God by calling us setting us apart, and purposing us for the worship of His Son, Jesus. There must be a heart that is deeply affected by the work of grace in Christ. A heart that is in awe of God's kindness to you in Christ. Stirred up with an affection and a zeal for God. That's what a grace community looks like. When grace is cultivated in the church, you will have hearts that overflow in thankfulness for what God has done. You will celebrate the work of grace, not only in your life, but in the lives of others. We'll celebrate when others come to know that grace savingly. We communicate that grace as we share the gospel with our lost neighbors. We communicate it to one another as we extend grace and love and service to each other. And we cultivate the grace in our church when we live out the reality of that grace as it has changed our lives. When we say that grace has affected our hearts so deeply, that we, like John Newton, can say, I once was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but I'm found. We see the story of those men's lives, and you recount the story of your own. You know that grace is at work. Well, lastly, Paul, of course, reminds us that grace is personified in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Grace is personified in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is grace. The Apostle Paul uh, excuse me, John will tell us in his gospel that Jesus came in truth and in grace. That he is grace personified. That God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take on the sins of others, of you and me, of all those who would place their faith in Christ. He absorbs the wrath reserved for sinners. That's what the gospel teaches us. And that's what grace is. It's been said that grace is unmerited favor. Something you can't earn and you can't buy. This is what the gospel does. It extends God's freedom from sin. God's love and reconciliation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so when we think, friends, about what grace looks like in the church, we must think first and chiefly about the person and work of Jesus. And then that moves us to celebrate, communicate, and cultivate grace in our lives. This is what it means to be a community of grace. 
This is what Paul intends for the Corinthians to see and understand. And over the next year, as we look at what this letter teaches us, we will ask ourselves, how can we be a community of grace that lives out the truth of the gospel? Well, friends, if you're not a Christian this morning or this idea of God's grace to you seems foreign, it may be because you don't yet understand what is truly offered at the cross. Recognizing that we are all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all in need of God's grace if we are to be reconciled to Him. But Jesus has come, the Son of God, took on flesh, absorbed God's wrath for sin as a punishment for all mankind, that those who place their faith and trust in Christ will be saved. Through no merit or work of their own, nothing that you do or bring, but simply grace. Grace upon grace. Jesus offers grace to us today, to you today, to the world around us today because of the cross. So when we think of grace, we think of Jesus, we think of his work, we think of the cross, and it moves us to celebrate, communicate, and cultivate grace in our lives. Well, next week we'll see in the next several verses just how that grace plays out more intrinsically as we are to give grace and grow in grace, as we are to be sustained by grace and ultimately how we are to be glorified in grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we know that there's much more to be said about the nature of God's grace. There's much more to be said about the the cross and the power of grace. But Father, I simply ask that my humble words would be enough to impress and move the hearts of all of us here to be thankful for that grace to remember that we once were sinners in need of grace and now we stand and sit here together as saints called and saved by grace. And though we may stumble and we may profane and we may reject grace, Father, would you continue to grow us in that grace offered to us only in the person and the work of your son, Jesus. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name.